Hello and welcome to this NLive's Open for Business podcast platform. My name is Adrian Price, the guy from the university, as I keep saying, with the perfect face for radio. And I host a show every Tuesday from 7 to 9 p.m. called Open for Business. Open for Business celebrates the very best of business in Northampton and Northamptonshire and brings together business, civic, charity and indeed academic leaders to talk about the business environment, to talk about initiatives and projects, especially where, they're, where they are all working together for the good of the community. So enjoy these extended interviews on this podcast. They're now set up as a standalone for you to savour and uh, to learn from some of the movers and shakers in the county. Enjoy. Well, we do like to have from time to time um, international guests to bring us a little bit of a, a perspective from outside of Northampton and Northamptonshire. And, you know, we've had people from different parts of the world, including Mexicans living in Germany and people in California and Spain, etc. But today we're going a little bit further afield to Australia where um, a very good friend of mine, Lars Lohman, is based. And uh, Lars and I, we met in uh, Barcelona in 1988 doing our MBA. And um, Lars has since traveled the world in many ways. So we're going to hear a little bit about life from his perspective. And I guess we should start with uh, COVID. Uh, Lars, how are you coping with COVID out there in Australia? Uh, G'day, Adrian. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, well, Australia has, to a large extent, weathered the storm very well, but we have been what they call a hermit nation. We've locked down and pretty much have not allowed anybody to come into this country uh, except for returning Australians. And even that they are having a difficult time getting back to this country. I think a, quite a few, some of them were travelers, but I think quite a few were Australians living abroad that basically wanted to leave COVID ravaged countries and stuff like that. And uh, apparently there's still 30,000 people trying to get back home. And uh, we've just had an outbreak in Victoria now. Like you, you guys overseas uh, would, would think that 35 cases is nothing, but here um, the whole state might soon go into lockdown because of that. And um, it was because of one returning uh, person, I believe, we don't know what country, possibly India, because of a, a strain that was coming. He had been in hotel quarantine for two weeks, but probably picked up COVID at the hotel. Oh. And, um, and then when he was released two weeks uh, after his two-week quarantine, he was tested uh, negative went into uh, obviously to go see all his friends and bunk out all the bars and everything that's open here. And within six, seven days, he tested, uh, he tested positive. And in, in since has uh, infected up to like 35 people in, in Victoria. So the city is blacked out and shut down again. All shops closed, everything. So we are okay here in Sydney where I'm based. Uh, but other than that, um, we will see. I mean, I will not be able to go overseas myself probably uh, for another 12 to 15 months at the earliest. They will not let Australians travel overseas unless it's to a country like New Zealand that has virtually no cases. And we have an agreed open border there. And that can change any day if we have cases here. So in a, in a libertarian society, quite an authoritarian approach, which is to, as you say, close down the borders and take it exceptionally seriously. How many deaths, roughly, have, has Australia had uh, since the pandemic first started? Do you know? I think we've had less than, I think about 900, less than 1,000, 900 something. Really? And, uh, which is, 
reasonably good for a population of about 25 million people. So, um, uh, and most of those occurred in the first uh, wave uh, when we were still trying to work out how to manage the, the situation. Then we had a second wave in Victoria where we had quite a few deaths. And um, but since then we've had very, very few deaths and virtually all the cases that we have today are coming out of the uh, people entering the country um, and in, uh, in hotel quarantines. So we really don't have a lot of domestic um, uh, transference of the disease of COVID, but I mean, clearly when someone comes out of quarantine and they test positive, they're then doing it. So um, uh, that's, that's the debate that the government's having here. Um, how do we manage bringing people into this country in a safe way? Uh, and that's, that's what we're debating now. So have you got, though, um, inhibitions on your day-to-day -day lives? I mean, lockdown, are, are shops open, all shops open? Do you have to wear masks, the two-meter social distancing Sydney is um, completely open. Now, there's absolutely no restrictions in Sydney. I went to a movie last night, and I thought, you know, they're, they're giving you, you know, seats, you know, allocated seats. And, you know, guess what? I had people right next to me. They could have left those seats empty, but they didn't. Um, and no one's wearing a mask here. Really? Um, and we basically don't have any community transmission. So people are going out uh, as normal here. I go to work every day. Um, they said there has been some scares. So, you know, if I can avoid public transport, I might. Mm. Um, but yeah, so um, we're, we're pretty much normal here. But the minute, you know, we get a handful of cases, we'll be in lockdown for sure. Interesting. Sure. Interesting. Well, they're criticizing the British government perhaps for being a bit too slow at times. But as I say, that libertarian, um, let's rely on the common sense of the people. But, um, you know, interesting to see the different examples around the world. Now, Sydney, you're living in Sydney. What's it like living in Sydney then? Is it a paradise on earth? Well, they say Australia is the lucky country. And um, I, I suppose um, there's a lot of good things about Australia. Like, like any country, there are uh, there are good things and bad things, and um, um, you know you try to uh, to do the best. Uh, climate change, even though we are one of the countries most affected by climate change in terms of heat, droughts, and all that stuff, you probably most of your listeners would be aware of the bushfires we had here um, just over about 15 months ago, and um, yet our government basically is in denial that it's something that we should really be worried about. Uh, it's, a, it's a conservative liberal government, unlike your conservative liberal government that really wants to do something about it. So it's, it's disappointing. And uh, a lot of it has to do with who's, who's paying their um, campaign funding. It's, uh, it's the fossil fuel industries that are very heavily involved in that. Well, my goodness. But we'll come on to what you're trying to do about it in a, in a minute in terms of your work in um, this area. Now, uh, for those people trying to detect your accent then, Lars, is, is it a classic Aussie accent or is your accent, has it got <laughs> other influences? Not at all. Uh, I, I, I must say I am, I was born in the United States in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, and um, my, my parents were both of German descent, but my mother, she, her family left Germany in 19, late 1938, just six months before the war and um, could not settle as Germans in the United States. So they ended up in Mexico and became Mexican citizens. So I've always had three cultures pretty much running through my veins since birth, um, the Mexican, the German and the American. And um, it was only when I was 18 that I um, decided to go overseas and, and discover my roots back in Germany. 
and um, and uh, went on an exchange there and later did a university exchange. And 10 days after my last university exam, I was on a plane and landed in Germany. Uh, I do, because of my father was still a German citizen when I was born, I have a, I'm dual national. So he can all fließen Deutsch sprechen. I can speak fluent German. And of course, as you know, I speak pretty good Spanish. Um, uh, which, I, which I had a bit of an advantage over some of the students at ESA because I already spoke Spanish before I got there, but it was rusty. I hadn't spoken it in many years. So um, uh, yeah. I, I learned yeah. time at ESA and uh, it was um, uh, my business. So after, 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 uh, after arriving in Europe, I ended up land, working in Germany for many years. This was before I started my business school program. Ended up back at a German company um, uh, back in Germany after the uh, ESA. And uh, they sent me off to Australia, and that was in 1993, and to set up a business for them. And I was only due to be here about two years. I, I met my future wife and ended up staying. Uh, so I've been here in Australia since 1993. Most of my life I've lived now in Australia, but I have not picked up the accent. I can <laughs> give it if you really push me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah, thank you for that, um, sharing this little bit of the, the journey, because uh, obviously you've traveled a lot, but with, um, you know, something, as you say, in your blood. Just tell us a little bit about the MBA then. So we were in Yese, I-E-S-E in Barcelona, a very good school, um, bilingual MBA, you know, two-year program just for some of my students. What 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 um, do you recall mostly from those days? And, you know, we are talking about, goodness, 1988 to 1990. So what did it teach you? What were the biggest one or two things, firstly, that it taught you? Well, I had, I had always wanted to do an MBA. Um, it was um, pre-programmed for me to be doing an MBA, but as an undergraduate, I studied economics and political science and German. And, um, and I knew I was gonna do an MBA. So for me, after working three years in Germany, um, originally doing reinsurance, I, um, I um, was looking forward to the MBA program. I knew I was lacking that business um, new nuances, nuances and the number crunching and all that kind of stuff. And um, for me, the first year of the program was by far the most influential um, in what we did. Uh, as um, some of your listeners may know, ESA is, uh, uses the case study. We didn't have one textbook for the two years. I think we, I might've bought two, a finance book and an accounting book, but other than that was case study based. So you go through um, learning um, these cases and analyzing them, and then you um, discuss them in the classroom. And that, and when you come out of the MBA program, you're coming out firing on all four cylinders or five, whatever kind of vehicle you've got. And um, it, uh, it is a very um, opening experience. Uh, for, it was for me. Um, the second year basically allowed me to get more depth into my education and um, uh, and focus on areas that I wanted to pursue later in life. Yep. But uh, yep. the MBA for me was the the opportunity that well, it's just the, the the key thing that opened up doors to allow me to pursue um, a career in a direction that I wanted to take. So the technical skills, obviously, as you say, not taught, but having to kind of glean them from a case study. What was the social life like in Barcelona at that time? <laughs> uh, I've heard a few of the interviews that you have with a few of your other uh, graduates in our class. And 
I have to say, we, as you mentioned it, we worked hard. Uh, it wasn't the sangria MBA that some people used to categorize the essay with, but um, you know, we worked very hard the first year, um, but we also played hard and would enjoy ourselves. So I remember in the first year how we um, set up a rugby uh, team and we all traveled to Paris to do this rugby, um, the, all, to challenge all the business schools, European business schools to rugby. I think we came in last, but that wasn't, that didn't matter. That was just a great, a great social event. And, um, and I know the school was totally against us going and they, what did they do? They slapped an exam on us for Monday morning. <laughs> so we, I remember all of us studying in the bus on the way home on Sunday. But um, yeah, so we did, we did, um, we did uh, play hard and we, uh, we worked very hard. So, it was a great uh, year because there was a threat that if you didn't pass the first year, if you had five C's, you were out of the school program. Yeah. So um, we had 15 classes in the year, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it was five or six each term. So if you are five, I think, and then if you got five C's, you would be out. And I think, um, I think there was 20% A's, 80, uh, no, 10% A's, 20% B's, and 10% C's. So it would have been very difficult to to fail. Um, I don't think I got one C in the in the two years I was there, but I did get a, some B's. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> not many A's because it's hard to get them as well. <laughs> yeah, no, important. Uh, it's your learning. It's what, what's really critical. And a uh, you know, great point average, which they use in America and all that kind of stuff is, was not important. Just passing and getting through the year. And, and um, you know, at the end of the day, it's what you put into it that you get out of it. And really, and you, and open, and opening doors, that's been all I saw. It was a ticket to, to get to stage in your life. You know, having uh, clearly wanted to do an MBA, though, let's go back to when you were 18 or 20. Uh, what advice would you give to your younger self based on what you know now? Um, uh, it's, uh, I'd probably give myself the advice that I gave myself when I was a young person. Um, I don't think I would change anything. I, I, I might not be unique uh, in any way, but I... When I was in the third grade, I discovered the love of learning. And, um, and I don't know if people, if your listeners have ever done these, you know, try to discover what their strengths are and stuff like that. But learning is my second highest strength. And um, so for me, going to the MBA program was just bliss. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved learning. I loved discovering new things. I love being challenged, um, and um, and and I guess the flip side of that is you can get bored if you're not continuously challenged. And um, part of that has uh, led me to um, several major career changes in my life. The most recent one having occurred about um, 10, 12 years ago, when I uh, went independent, uh, stopped working in the corporate world started consulting, started uh, adult educating. I was a, became a teacher and uh, I work now in the area of sustainability, energy efficiency and solar. Uh, totally different. Um, I, I have, as you know, I have a economics and business background. I don't have a technical background, but I've learned a lot of technical stuff, which has been great, wonderful. So you're self-taught enough to be able to convince other people to hire you and do some work for them around then sustainability. So despite the government not necessarily believing in climate change, 
you do, and you're doing something about it. Well, businesses are. Um, as When I started this whole path, um, we did have a labor government that had introduced a carbon price. Um, and, um, and then the liberal government rallied against them for three years straight, calling, calling to axe the tax. And they ended up getting into power, and um, unfortunately. But um, so the, the carbon tax was, was uh, removed. And uh, that changed. I mean, you could not use the word carbon um, here in Australia at that stage. But in the end of the day, uh, businesses want to um, want to be efficient in one way or another. They want they're always seeking for efficiencies, uh, ways to save money. And uh, to be perfectly honest, energy efficiency and even solar provide some of the best return investments uh, that you can think of. The only thing holding people back uh, is if they are perhaps short of capital uh, and they need to spend that money on growing the business rather than trying to spend it on efficiencies. Um, and that's when you know financing and other things can come into play because the banks and um, uh, the rest of the uh, financial community have, have um, finally understood um, you know, how the business case for sustainability, the business case for energy efficiency and solar, and readily providing funds at almost close to zero cost, as you know, these days. So um, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's just convincing people to, um, that that's where they need to spend their money. Okay. Uh, and being the right decision makers in the end of the day. And, and I presume business is good and only going to get bigger if more and more companies realize that they have to be doing something about it because of, well, either government pressure, consumer pressure, employee pressure, press pressure. Well, yeah, I mean, businesses know that they have a, um, they need a, a license to operate. Um, There's you know, social responsibility. Um, I like the word license to operate because um, in the end of the day, uh, consumers could seriously impact the um fortunes of a company if they do the wrong things. Um, mm. I believe that companies, um, more, more and more the corporate world is supporting, um, you know, net zero emissions um, by, you know, uh, 2040 or 2050, but the government won't commit. And, um, and that, it's weird. I don't, I don't quite get it. Uh, I have um, most 70% of Australians, I believe, if you interview them, believe that climate change is a serious issue and it's among the top concerns for them. Yeah. But, um, but in the end of the day, the government gets elected um, and gets funding from fossil fuel sources. And it could be both labor parties and um, the Liberal Party here. Um, there was a by-election just uh, in New South Wales in a, um, where they dig all the coal out of the ground and export it to the largest... Um, coal exporting terminal in the world in Newcastle here in New South Wales. And uh, in that by-election, Labor lost big because they, the, they, even Labor is split. They want to support jobs, but they also want to support the environment and they don't know how to balance the two of them. Mm. Um, because if you're dealing with the, the electorate who are all coal miners or dependent on the coal industry, what do you tell them? about jobs yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's a challenge um it's a big challenge for for the labor party to be able to do both um yeah, the Liberal party just continues to be very vague about any commitments and they managed to do all right 
Well, we'll we're going to see that throughout the world, really, in terms of structural change in the economies as you move, as you say, from sort of older um, fossil fuel industries. So it's not a not alone, but hopefully the government has to help that transition, right, for those families that are affected. Um, just to change gear, talking about families, then. So you say that you met your wife Miriam in Australia. So just tell us the current family situation, um, Lars. Yeah. Yes. Um... So I met her about a year after, a little bit before uh, a year after I came here. And, um, and we've been married now for 25 years and I have two children, 23 and 20 and a half. So about two, year, two and a half years apart. And um, they, are, um, they have three passports. They have the American, the German and the Australian. Um, I myself do not have an Australian passport after all these years here. I would lose my European passport, my German passport. And up until now, recently, I wanted to wait till they had turned 18 or, or older as adults. And I just haven't gotten around to doing it. But I, uh, I may end up losing my European passport. And I really don't want to, to lose that. I still cherish that connection to Europe. But um, in a way... I, my situation won't be any different than the, the British with Brexit. So yeah, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for thanks for reminding me about that. With a Spanish wife, you know, going backwards and forwards to Spain, driving or flying won't be as easy as it used to be. I don't think that's um, that's for sure. But you did um, bring the family back for a couple of years, right? You had a sabbatical in Europe just to give your children the exposure to the yeah, European country. Um, well, you know, Australia is is uh, uh, quite far away. Um, it's, I think, door-to-door -door flying into Europe anywhere is a minimum 24 hours of traveling. Um, so no one travels here lightly. It would be a very long-term planned event. Um, and and um, so Australia is very remote. And uh, we wanted our, our, our children to, um, to experience Europe. And I guess um, when you're struggling raising a young family, and uh, I had family overseas that I had to go see occasionally, um, getting the whole family to go overseas and travel from Australia is um, not inexpensive. So um, we uh, we didn't hadn't taken the kids. Uh, we took them over when they were younger once to Italy, and had a wonderful Europe trip there and Switzerland there. And then we um, we kind of made the decision. I had always kind of had the desire to go back to Europe, um, but more important. I thought it was, the timing was right. I, before the kids started high school, we thought they should experience Europe by living there. Um, I know that you've spoken to some other people from ASA, and they say, until you've actually lived in the country, you will never really truly experience it. And our children have a German background. They do have an American background. And uh, I really wanted them to experience Europe because I love Europe. I loved living there. I, I lived a total of 10 years in Europe. Um, actually, no, sorry, uh, 12 years in Europe, uh, two, I forgot the two years I lived in Spain. So uh, I had a wonderful time in, in Europe, and um, I wanted my children to experience that. So we, we I kind of decided where do we want to go to Germany, and we, we uh, basically both had left our jobs, picked up, flew over to Germany, and arrived in Munich in, um, in late August of 2008, and I think most of your listeners will know what happened on the 15th of September of 2008, Lehman Brothers <laughs> collapsed. And uh, I, we went there without jobs. At the time, Munich and Bavaria had the lowest unemployment rate in Germany, about 
I think less than 3%. It was incredible for German standards. And uh, we thought there'd be no problem getting work, but it turned out to be quite a different story when, when you have a global financial crisis that hits. And uh, with German hiring laws, um, companies were reluctant to take on additional staff where they didn't need it. So yeah, it was an interesting time. It became a somewhat involuntary sabbatical, but during that time I um, started re-educating myself much more in sustainability. Uh, um, and, um, and when I got back to Australia, I embraced it completely and moved all my consulting work uh, at that time and into, into that area. Excellent. So an ill wind that blows, um, what is it? What do they say? An ill wind. It's an ill wind. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. It's an ill wind. So the yeah, cross-cultural... There was a reason for it that, for that happening, I believe. That, yeah. That's what I think it is. There's a reason for everything. Yes. And um, it has... I, I was... I got... I hit that age in my life, Adrian, where, um, where you want... What you do... And I think every young person today, if you ask most of your students, they want to work for companies that... Um, have, that mean a lot to them and what they do they have that are actually doing good for the, uh, the environment, for the world, socially, whatever it might be. I kind of had that desire as well. I said, I, I, at the time when I left the corporate world, I was working for a gift company. We were making teddy bears. And you know, you make teddy bears out of, out of synthetic materials, which are made out of oil. And everything we made was out of oil. And I'm going, this is not right. I uh, actually, at the time before I left, I was the general manager of that company here in Australia. And I was trying to develop a, a line of teddy bears made out of bamboo. And I see, and I actually had fantastic samples made up. I had a client that wanted to buy a million dollars worth of it. But then since I was working for an American-based company that was owned by an equity firm, they said, no, not interested. I think to this day, I think you know, there's no one making a teddy bear out of bamboo. It's uh, a business opportunity for some of your listeners if they want to do it. <laughs> Very good. Indeed. Uh, a nice, um, nice story. Nice anecdote. But, now, but that's what I want to do. I wanted to do something really meaningful in my life and leave, leave a bit more of a legacy. And so while I was worried about climate change, I decided to, I would put my, um, my, um, you know, my, my efforts, my rest of my efforts and my, my work life back into trying to do something good for the world. So that's what I do now, energy efficiency and solar to reduce emissions and trying to reduce our CO2 emissions. Well, as the regular listeners will know, this show is always on about better business, business being more, um, what's the word, triple bottom line approach, right? Looking after people, planet, and as well as profit. So um, we exactly. are of a like, like mind there indeed. Well, just to um, talk about the cross-cultural experiences you've had, Lars, you know, um, with the family and your own background, et cetera, and the travels that you've voluntarily undertaken, you know, what, what key messages would you say about the uh, cultural differences around the world? Are we more alike than we are the different? Or actually, is it the joy of travel is to understand the differences and kind of come to terms with the differences? Well, I've, you know me, I've, I've, been, I've always been very extroverted. So I can become the best friend with uh, a person I meet on the street um, within minutes. Uh, and for me, meeting people has never been a problem. Uh, that actually, by the way, is my number one strength. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, um, I, I've never found it difficult to meet people, no matter where I've been. And I think in the end of the day, I think people um, have that desire to connect uh, with others uh, in different ways. Uh, and um, 
I've always been, I've always been thought very, um, I don't say the word for it, but uh, very positive about people's intentions. Uh, my wife calls me sometimes. I'm not very street smart, smart or too gullible, but I, I do believe in the goodwill of most people and their intentions. And um, so I find it very easy to meet people. And I think that most people are the same in that regard. Sure, there's cultural differences. Sure, you have to be sensitive to those, um, those issues. Um, but uh, I, for me, I grew up like a European, like a German in many regards. I grew up speaking German at home in the United States. And it was interesting. I you know, went to dinner at a friend's house when I was eight years old and I asked him to pass, pass the Blumenkohl. And they looked at me and I go, what are you talking about? I said, what's that white vegetable? Oh, that's cauliflower. So I didn't even know the American word, the English word for it. So I think I've already grown up that way. And, I, um, and for me, uh, it, it, maybe it's very natural to, to feel that way, but I, 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 I love people all over the world and uh, every people, I, I, it doesn't matter where they come from. Uh, I've always been able to strike up friendships with uh, people around the world and I don't have any hesitancy. It doesn't matter what language or culture or anything. Uh, might not agree with some of their uh, country's politics, but the people are different. Uh, I think you need to look at the people, not, not necessarily a country's leader uh, who may not be very good, but the people are definitely, I think, generally speaking, um, worth uh, engaging, embracing. Very interesting. An open, an open mind and an open heart can get you uh, a long way without a shadow of doubt. So what's, um, you know, what's next, Lars, in, in life? Are you uh, thinking of relocating? Uh, is, is retirement coming up? Or are you going to come back to Europe, to the States or Mexico uh, when you retire? Or are the family very much um, settled in Australia? Well, I think Australia is going to be where I'm going to end up the uh, rest of my life. It uh, doesn't mean I'm not going to travel. I do have travel plans uh, once COVID allows it again. But um, yeah, we, we, um, we may not live in Sydney. We, we're actually thinking of escaping to a little island south of Australia called Tasmania. Um, people might, it's, it's got to be the most furthest place from the planet. But uh, the island only has about 500,000 inhabitants. It is a beautiful place, lots of fantastic nature. Um, and um, we believe uh, nothing's far away there. You could, you could live in the outskirts of Hobart or Launceston and have fantastic access to hospitals and all that. So we're, we're thinking that's where we might end up, get away from the big smoke. Um, and um, real estate prices are reasonable there, unlike Sydney, which is one of the most expensive cities in the world. And, um, and, and, and look at a retirement down there. And, and I think uh, my next career move will probably be in back into writing a book. I've always told myself I got a book in me or two, um, or three, a trilogy maybe. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I, um, my wife wants me to retire early and start that process, but I'm, uh, I'm hesitant to do so. <laughs> so. What type of books, Lars? Um, uh, for me, I think the, 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 first, the first one will be, I, I almost wrote a book about carbon management and how to go carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. I was working with collaborating with two others on that. And um, I did write a manual, a 100 page manual on how to go carbon neutral in Australia. Um, and I have helped organizations go carbon neutral. Uh, but I ended up not deciding how to do that book. Uh, the, the timing wasn't right. People didn't want to use the word carbon anymore. So I can that we did write this manual for the uh, the Australian government 
And then the government's changed and they didn't release it. That's in, it's very sad. So I did almost write a book on carbon management, which is work related. But the book that I want to do is a family saga about my family, um, which um, has quite an interesting background. But uh, we probably need to do another interview just to talk about that. <laughs> Well, there you go. When when you retire, we'll we'll get you on and tell us how the, the book writing is going. So Tasmania beckons or one of the wine regions, surely in Australia. I was thinking he's going to talk about going to live in one of the, the wine producing regions. But um, by the way, what's the population? It's, uh, it's funny population? you say that, Adrian, because I um I think when I in my uh, when I first came here, or even in my twenties when I was living in Europe before business school, I said. I want to retire. I want to buy a white vineyard and retire in a vineyard. Um, that's one thing I did say, but I think these days uh, it's crazy to even think, <laughs> contemplate that. Maybe there's something, uh, maybe in Italy they can buy one for cheap. I don't know. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't think so. They do say, how do you make a small fortune in, in the wine business? Start with a big fortune. So, um, yeah, exactly. you know. <laughs> that, is, that is true anywhere, I believe. Yeah, um, and uh, it's not something you want to contemplate in your retirement. But I, I do kind of like have those dreams of just you know waking up every morning and looking over the vineyard. But I could probably just be in a house near one, so that'd be good enough. <laughs> Very good. Well, Lars, fantastic for you to um, to come on the show and share with us some insights into your life for both our colleagues from Yesse, who this is made available to them as a standalone podcast, but also to my listeners here in Northampton and Northamptonshire, because we do like to get a perspective from you know different places around the world, as well as obviously focusing on our own issues here in the county. And, and challenges. But uh, great to have you. That open mind, that open heart comes shining through, Lars. Thanks ever so much. So a big hug to you and all the family. Um, keep well, keep safe, and we hope to see you very soon, COVID permitting. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview. There are plenty more here on the podcast platform. And of course, you can always listen on uh, live on Tuesday evenings from 7 to 9 p.m. on NLive Radio 106.9 FM or digitally via nliveradio.com. Um, if you'd like to know more about the radio station, please do look at nliveradio.com. And um, we're always looking for support from the community and further afield. So if you'd like to support us, please go to nliveradio.com slash support us. So until next time, thank you very much again for listening.